going on with dance and stuff? What's happening with dance and things? What's going on? What's happening? What's going on with dance and stuff? Stop! I'm stop. Hello, I've never come so dangerously close to forgetting to record a podcast. The week has flown by. It's Thursday and mm, it's Friday morning even. It's 12.32 a.m. on a Friday morning. I came home late from the ballet. I, I've seen the ballet three times already this season. And, you know, the season, I, I think the season's only been going on for about a week. Right? Yeah, one week. Um, so I'll, I will talk about the ballets. Um, it's unfortunate I didn't record earlier when I was standing on the street with a gaggle of gaze at, um, um, Jacob Roberts' home. But, uh, you know, I forgot I had a podcast, to be honest. But here we are. Um, so I'm going to talk about ballets, but first I want to talk about what is actually on everybody's mind, which is the season finale of And Just Like That. Wow, wow, wow. Wow, wow, wow. So, no major surprises. One sort of minor revelation that I think a lot of us were were kind of asking questions about how the podcast or the um the show seemed to be making such a strange oversight and that is to do with um Carrie's podcast's producer who's a sort of like impossibly handsome man close in age to Miss Carrie Bradshaw who's taken on the role of a non-character in and just like that and then suddenly in this episode, he emerges, and just like that, and just like that. So, at the beginning of the episode, we find Carrie finishing up a date with this guy who she barfed in the streets with a few episodes ago, and um, and then she went on another non-date with him where she showed up to the date to tell him that she couldn't go on a date with him and he gave her a kind of knowing smile because they both have dead spouses and he said strike two or something like that and then you know apparently they got their strike three because they did a kiss before she clomped up the steps of her um upper east side brownstone in her giant hot pink zombie stompers and she did not enjoy that kiss. So that was the end of it for tall gray hair. And um and then she thinks she's being haunted by the spirit of Big through her mid-century modern lamp lampette on these shelves. Now how long have these shelves been here? I think they may have been there during the pee pee on the bed episode, but I cannot believe that Carrie Bradshaw has these dorm room shelves installed directly above her head of her bed. Seems A of all dangerous, B of all bizarre. I don't think Carrie would 
would be, well, we know she's not in need of ingenious storage solutions since she has a full walk-through closet. But have I just missed these shelves for all these years? Have they been there? Are they new? They're strange. I don't like them. And you know, I like, I like practical storage solutions, but even I wouldn't sleep with shelves above my head. I would not sleep with shelves above my head. I just don't like it. I don't like the idea of it. So she thinks um, Big is coming through the lamp to tell her that um, she shouldn't be kissing with this gray man. And um, she tells the girls at brunch and Miranda whose wig is as ferocious as ever in this episode. And we will find out why by the end. Miranda cannot believe Carrie is entertaining the idea of heaven. She can't believe for a second that Carrie is now in a discourse around the afterlife. Is big in heaven. Now, of course, Charlotte is, she's all for it. She's, she has a newfound spirituality via her Jewish faith with Harry over the last two decades. And Charlotte is in the process of planning rocks, they mitzvah. And um, so, you know, we're guaranteed, we have the promise of a party at the end of the episode. And, you know, Charlotte's really trying to make it nice and be unbearable as ever. And she's She's bossing everyone around and she and Harry are trying a sample loaf of challah that um, Anthony has brought from his um, Hot Guys baking company. And he brought them a kind of jazzy challah loaf, which is a sourdough. And Harry can't take it. Harry thinks that at this they mitzvah for his non-binary child, they need to have some sense of tradition and the old world so that the elders and uh, a handful of other um, uh, conservatives at this 300-person they mitzvah will, will have some reason to feel grounded and grounded in the form of just regular old challah bread as served by 250 pound beefcakes in denim jumpsuits. So, um, I, okay, so then what's happening? What's going on with Miranda? Miranda is invited to an event by Che. Che has tricked Miranda by saying, I need you to come to this basement bar to meet my family. So Miranda thinks that she is going to go to meet Che's uh, parents or whomever so that Che can ask for Miranda's hand in marriage or whatever. It turns out that Che seems to have two grandmothers, living grandmothers, at this basement bar where they are not going to propose to Miranda. Instead, they're actually going to get up on stage, take two shots of some high-proof liquor, and they're going to sing California Girls as some 
gesture of mm, comedic gotchaism to to express that they are moving to California temporarily to film a pilot and the producers have said that they think Che none other than Che Diaz could be the next Roseanne. It was it was this came at a time in the scope of and just like that where I think a lot of us were starting to accept the existence of Che Diaz in you know the the and just like that universe and suddenly i mean shall i say and just like that we all hate che diaz yet again to do something so humiliating so humiliating as to announce that you have been that you are in a green lighted pilot by going into a basement bar, inviting your grandparents and your girlfriend, and then singing California Girls in a ridiculous musical theater fashion to explain to them that you, you are going to California and they are not. They didn't get picked up for pilot season and you did. Che Diaz, may they rot in hell. Um... So Miranda's all flipped out. She's thinking Che's going to leave me in the dust to rot here with my senior girlfriends who are struggling not only with hip and back issues, but also with, uh, for Charlotte, what I can only describe as some form of cognitive impairment. So at any rate, now we have also Che what Che is quitting the podcast because Che is doing their pilot which means that Carrie and the annoying comedian the other annoying comedian are out of a job Now annoying comedian number 2 is leaving um what I can only assume must be the Condé Nast building where they're recording a podcast in a soundproof glass cube. And, and he and Carrie are shooting the shit as they walk down the street. And it turns out she's quit smoking again, but he's inviting Carrie to a party that his fashion designer girlfriend wants Carrie to attend. Um, so now what's happening? Carrie, I've skipped the fact that Carrie has a phone call with Seema immediately following her shitty date with Big Gray. And in that phone call, Seema is on the smoking floor of a hotel room in a suite with with old Frenchie from Emily in Paris. And they're smoking cigs in bed. And he's feeding her caviar, uh, caviar on little pancakes, um, he's feeding her little caviar pancakes, um, in his boxer briefs while Seema is on the phone with Carrie. And while they're engaged in almost full cunnilingus, um, Carrie is like, have a great time, Seema. 
And then she's like, thanks, babe. I'm sorry your date was so shitty. And then they hang up the phone. Um, okay, so now I have you all caught up on Seema. Seema thinks she likes um, Old Frenchie from Emily in Paris. I saw Old Frenchie at an event actually one time. He was at the um, premiere of Dope Sick that my Aunt Jane brought me to as her date. And um, he's incredibly handsome in real life. And he doesn't look tall on um, for some reason on these shows, but he's tall. I think I feel like he's almost as tall as I. I'm drinking water with a little bit of lemon. So then... The um, trans rabbi has been brought to the palatial home of Charlotte and Harry to um, get acquainted with Rock and plan out the scriptures, etc. It turns out that Rock is not prepared and has not been prepping and will not be prepping. Anthony decides to intervene and goes into the room where Rock is playing video games and says, you better pull your shit together because I went to theater camp where I was bullied by homophobes and I had to, I only got to play Sky Maddox and Guys and Dolls because the other guy got sick. <sighs> so Anthony says, you better pull your shit together. And learn your lines, little bitch. And so, um, what, what's crazy is that much ado from Anthony, which you think is really going to be, you know, their final contribution to season one of And Just Like That. And Rock still goes ahead and does not learn their lines. And decides during the event itself that they are not going through with it. Now, we're not there yet because at this party that annoying comedian number two is hosting with their fashion designer girlfriend who is wearing um, a series of uh, yellow Easter baskets that she's fashioned into a bikini and skirt and it's actually a um, a surprise wedding. So they perform their nuptials and the officiant says at the end, you may now kiss each other or do whatever will get you the most Facebook likes or Instagram likes. And um, it just makes you want to blow your brains out because you think this really is, this really is where we are. This is the world we deserve right now. But at any rate, the impossibly gorgeous podcast producer, who it, to up until this point has only existed behind bulletproof glass, shows up at the event in a ray of light, and he says, Carrie, I've watched you grow as a podcaster, and I really think I'm going to give you a solo show where you're going to do Colin chats with other widows and 
She says, you think, really think I'm ready for this? As if he's offering her a role in the remake of The King and I. Or they've said, we're rethinking Annie the Musical and we'd like you to come back and reprise your role as Annie Warbucks. So, at any rate, I, I, I mean, look. For me, a podcast is sitting at my kitchen table at one in the morning and panicking because I've forgotten to record my podcast and then staring at my slowly dying iPad Pro as I record directly into the Anchor app. That is what podcasting is to me. So for me, it is unimaginable that, and just like that, is painting a picture of podcasting as being some kind of high-end radio show. It just isn't, I mean, look, we've never been picked up by a network and I never got to see the digs at Forever Dog or whatever, but it's not that. It's just not that. So here we are. We're moving forward. We're at the Ve Mitzvah. There's... All of Dylan's candy bar, bar shop is available to the patrons. Um, the Hollas are arriving late from the hunks in the, uh, uh, what were they, how do you even describe such a thing? These, these shorty short denim jumpsuits, which are sleeveless, suitable only for a proper Chippendale. Okay, so then what happens? <sighs> Rock is in their white yarmulke and pink suit and they're not doing it. They're not having it. And Charlotte is wearing a dress that has to have been absolutely an adult-sized version of some cheapo Halloween store Cinderella dress Disney vibes. It has the most unflattering neckline I've ever seen on an adult female and full poof sleeves and a satin belt to match and um, a poof skirt. Now, that dress is made up of enough expensive fabric that it is absolutely salvageable. And I feel that in 30 minutes to 60 minutes, I could do a Project Runway makeover and have Charlotte looking ship shape. But it really wasn't it. Miranda has decided that she is going to California with Che because Che has invited Miranda um, to, to continue on in what is a doomed relationship. Oh, I also forgot to mention that Miranda, in her preparations to go to California, has gone to the office of her professor... Her impossibly sort of hip uh, law professor at Columbia who's in the sexiest relationship with somebody who wants kids. And inexplicably, her law professor has seems to have no friends. And so she has befriended her most excruciating student, which is Miranda Holmes. So... 
Miranda goes to tell her teacher, I'm leaving, I'm going to California, which means I'm going to have to do courses remotely and I'm not taking this internship with other 18-year-olds that I hear is really hard to get. And her teacher goes, oh, I really was counting on you being here because my relationship is on the fritz and my gorgeous husband is going out on the road for a few months. And I'm thinking, there's no way on this earth or in this reality that this woman wants to hang out with Miranda Hobbs. And yet here we are. And just like that. So we're, we're, we're okay, fast forward. We're at the Bay Mitzvah and um, Carrie, oh, I for, again, a lot happened in this episode. They had to really wrap it up. Episode 10. Carrie has lunch with Big's gorgeous brother and you think this is going to be the spark. You know, this is going to be why the light bulb's been turning on and off. And Carrie, oh, meanwhile, Carrie's already taken her mid-century light thingy to the fix-it shop. And she's confiding in the um, fixer-upper man. She's saying, so, you know, sometimes are these things kind of inexplicable? You know, she really wants it to be the magic. But when she picks up the lamp, the the light repair person says, oh, it was just a faulty wire. And I fixed her right up. And Carrie says... Just a faulty wire? And then stares at him and then fully sobs in the repair shop. So then Carrie puts the lamp. Is this after the day? I'm just going to go on with the day mitzvah and then we'll get back in bed. Back in bed under the shelves at Carrie's apartment. So Carrie is now um, at the day mitzvah and she's telling Miranda and Charlotte, Oh, I forgot this lunch. Okay, she has lunch with Big's, with Big Brother. And he's like, where is John? And Carrie's like, oh my God, you're losing your mind. You're fully still Alicing. And um, John is dead, sweetie. And he's like, um, doy, doy Carrie, I'm fine. No, but where are his chips and ashes? And she's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. They're in my walkthrough closet right next to my um, my favorite shoes. And if you knew me at all, you'd know that that is a place of extreme importance in my home. So then, oh God, it's so much. So then he's like, well, you know, it's been almost a year and I'm... I'm chomping at the bit to make sure that John gets a place in the mausoleum in Connecticut with the rest of the fam. And then he pulls out a piece of paper and he draws the configuration of this mausoleum, which is just so dark. He's like, down here is Gramps and Gramsies. And then we have mom and dad. And then up here we have my dead other brother and sister and then up here will be me and then over here all the way to the right on the top will be John and then you know because my wife is leaving me you can have her spot and Carrie's like oh that is nice that is kind and we could be sharing space as you know boxes of dirt 
um, into eternity or, or I'm going to figure out something else to do with his bones and ashes. And not for one moment am I going to consider the option that I could actually just take some of the dirt from this box and put it in a, another box, which is not in the shape of the Eiffel Tower, and um, send it off to your mausoleum. So no one thinks that John's dirty bone chips and fingernails and hairs can't be divided. They, they think that all these ashes need to remain together or else, you know, there is no sanctity to the whole of John's um, detritus. So, um, we're at the Vey Mitzvah. Carrie's explaining to her girl, her best girlies. She's saying, I am going to Gay Paris for a couple of days. I've booked us rooms at a fancy hotel. And as soon as I've solidified dates, I want you to come with me. It's only right that you're with me when I throw John over the edge of the bridge where um, he came and saved me from Mikhail Baryshnikov. So, um, Charlotte is like, yes, of course, no problem. I will carve out time in my busy schedule of losing my mind to come to Paris with my best friends. And Miranda's like, I'll do it. J'adore. And then she's like, however, you know, we'll have to be careful about the dates because I am going to be in California with my lover. And so like, as we eat these jelly beans, I'm going to tell you that, um, I, I, you know, I just need, I need some advance notice cause it's a long flight. And Carrie is just like completely flipped out because she, like the rest of America, knows that what Miranda's doing is incredible self-sabotage. And she's like, no, no, don't even worry about it, Miranda. You go do your crazy, crazy thing in California and um, enjoy doing literally nothing while your, um, while your partner or whatever is filming all day and in meetings all day. Um, enjoy your trips to Erwan and your walks down uh, the highways in the blaring sun. Um, and then Miranda's like, um, excuse me. Now they're in this fancy bathroom and Miranda's like, I want to support you. I just need a little bit of help. And then they're fighting and Carrie's like, she has her hair half back, which is bizarre. And she's like, I'm not, I'm disinviting you because you are not okay. And then out walks the trans rabbi and she is like, girls, I've seen the future and I've seen the past based on your voices. And you better pull it together because this is not a friendship worth destroying over the most hated person in North America and perhaps the entire world. And so Miranda and um, Carrie are like, oh, yeah, let's be friends. And 
And now no one can come to Paris because obviously I'm certainly not going to Paris with just Charlotte because that would be horrific since I don't even like her. Um, at this point, Rock is being just such a huge asshole and is, is like, I don't care that you spent at least $500,000 on this they mitzvah. I'm not doing it. <clears throat> so Charlotte goes to her glamour, glamorous bestie prep school mom friend and says, it's not happening. Uh, she crying full tears, full real tears out of her Botox tear ducts. And she's like, Rock's not going to do it. I don't know what I'm going to do. And her prep school mom friend says, nobody tries harder than you, Charlotte. I know you can figure this out. So Charlotte does what any sane mother would do. And she chooses to get they mitzvahed herself. So she reads the scriptures and she, um, she goes from a cognitively disabled, middle-aged or mm, mm, almost senior aged woman. Um, she goes from that to being exactly what she was before, except now she has 300 people thinking that she's, or in fact, confirming that she's fully out of her mind. Um, so she just wanted to let the kids know so that they could, they could call the paramedics if they see her still alicing in the streets when she's out there just screaming, screaming at everybody to, um, get in line or pay the price. Um, so at this point, cut to Carrie. Wow. God, this is they did a they did a shoot in Paris, so they they spent a little money to fly SJP first class by herself with one camera operator and a fifteen thousand dollar creamsicle colored gown, and um, uh, extreme evening gloves that look like um, paint kitchen gloves, and she looks she looks tremendous. I have to say, she looks absolutely beautiful. And she walks it onto the bridge with the with her stupid Eiffel Tower box full of John's dirty, dirty remains. And, um, you know, in a moment of emotion and, and, you know, sadness. It's a sad thing to let go of something like that. She tosses the ashes off the bridge as if she's, um, as if she's trying to get the dust out of an old, old rug. And it, it looks like that as well. So the dust falls into the river and, oh, I forgot to mention that pre earlier in the episode, she has texted Samantha Jones to be like, I'm sad. Like I had a date with a guy and we had a kiss and Samantha goes, well, you know, how was it? And Carrie goes, well, it wasn't big. And Samantha goes, then it was small. And I'm like, yeah, I wish you were here, Samantha. So the end of the episode carries, or close to the end of the episode, Carrie, wait a minute. Okay, yeah. Carrie's in Paris. She's just, she's just beaten out the rug on the river. And she texts Samantha because she's real sad. And she says, you know, 
I'm in Paris. Do you want to get a cocktail? Samantha, as we know, is in London. And she says, when? And tomorrow night. And then she says, Carrie says, fabulous. All caps. Um, so basically that text was a, um, a gesture, a gesture through the universe towards Kim Cattrall saying, please, please come back. We forgive you for hating us, for dragging us all these years. Um, and there's one scene I missed, which is where, oh, no, 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 no. So Carrie, wow, at this point I was washing dishes. So I, I kind of didn't sink in what happened because Carrie has texted Samantha Jones and they have a confirmed meeting. But then we just skip to after that's already happened. So that should have been the end of the episode. Just that text. Fabulous. But what actually happens is that we are to assume that the meeting happened. And now Carrie is sitting in her glass cube recording her her um, Dear Abby um, sex advice podcast. And she finishes up the recording and gets in the elevator with her absolutely gorgeous producer. And just like that, they make out. The elevator doors close. Roll credits. I'm so tired. Uh-huh. So, and just like that, it's been a real roller coaster of strangeness over the last 10 episodes. I really think that these Sex in the City episodes need to be Sex in the City length. They need to be 25 minutes. Because when they make them this long, the, look, for some reason, these writers do not have the ability to create scenes that are worth watching for more than a few seconds. So in a show that was probably 45 minutes, I just described to you 300 scenes that actually happened. They all happened. So and I'm sure I forgot some. Also, where's Steve? Oh my God. Oh, so I left out what what was perhaps the most shocking thing, which may I think this 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 happened right before we get to see Carrie doing her solo podcast. Miranda, well, no, you see Brady. Brady's coming out of their their Brooklyn brownstone, and he has a suitcase and he has jeans, a very flat ass, which I relate to, and he's saying I'm. I'm going backpacking with my girlfriend for the whole summer and I'm leaving my mom and my, my dad. And Miranda is at the bottom of the steps waiting near the car, her hair, she's removed the wig and her hair is red. And for a moment you think, oh, so now her hair matches her son's hair. And and so you're you're thinking, yeah, Miranda's a natural redhead. 
and she gave birth to a red-haired son. When in fact, Miranda was never a natural redhead. Her hair was always dyed red through the entire series in the 1990s. But at any rate, somehow Brady came out of Ginger. And I do have to say it is uncanny how he looks like the spawn of those two actors. Um, so they have a conversation about her hair and then her hair is now the symbol of kind of renewal and rebirth. And she's going to begin her fabulous life as a highway wanderer in Los Angeles, California. So yeah, there you go. Miranda and the wig. Cut. Miranda and the wig, the end. So, yeah, I'm glad I watched it. It was fun looking at it. There was a lot to look at. It's a lot. I liked Miranda's dress at the Thay Mitzvah. Her hair was endlessly distracting. I wish there was a way that I could forget about Che Diaz. Um, and so, there you have it. I hope next season is called, and there you have it. I'm going to now talk about dance. Are you ready? So I went to the ballet for the premiere of Justin. This was opening night. Justin Peck's new piece, Partita, premiered and was on a program with Summer Space by Merce Cunningham and DGV by Christopher Wieldon. And um, it all worked out really well, I have to say. Um, Justin's piece was a puzzle that was very difficult to put together. And, um, you know, we really did work as a team, um, looking at it and revising it through several rehearsals. I mean, it seemed like we didn't have a ton of time, but at the end of the day, we did have enough time to fully revise the costumes without putting undue stress on the New York City Ballet costume shop, which is good. I mean, I guess that's because our method has been to go from <laughs> complicated to less complicated when we realize that, you know, we've made a mistake. Well, not a mistake. Mistake seems like too finite of a word, but anyways... Everybody looked very nice in their costumes and danced beautifully and the music was great and the piece came off really well. And, and then I got to go to Russian Samovar with Eva Lewitt and friends and my friends Cassie and Jesse and George and, oh, it was nice. And everybody was super excited for Eva, so. Um, partita, partita. And I got to see it again a couple days later from the front row, which was a real pleasure because then I got to see the singers up close. And I kind of could, you know, shift my gaze back and forth between the singers and the piece and the singers and the piece. And that was a real pleasure. Um, summer space. I've, I've, I've always liked summer space. And, and after the last couple viewings of it, I have a newfound um, enchantment with summer space. I mean, I'm a Cunningham head at this point, but... Um, yeah, I thought the dancers, some of them have had time to grow into it, and there were new dancers in it who were just great, and Ashley Laracy debuted in it this season and was sort of uncanny in her amplitude of limb and stability. It was 
it was strange and and thrilling. Devin made a debut in Adrian's part, which is the Merce Cunningham role, and was just utterly charming, fascinating, very, very different from Adrian's version, um, which is a kind of more elegant kind of interpretation. Anyways, great dance. Loved it. Um, the highlight of DGV for me was seeing it the second time from the front row when um, Sarah Mearns and Tyler Engel uh, couldn't stop laughing, which was my greatest joy to see people having real feelings. Having real feelings in performance is is what we're all trying to get to as performers. You know, you want to be out there and step away from self-consciousness. You know, remove the element of being looked at and actually be on stage with other people who you know and have long relationships with and and be in communication really only with them for a moment. And that's what I got to witness and it was just so nice. I saw last night I went on a whim to the ballet. I was home working and suddenly it was 6.47 and I said, I'm going to see Mozartiana. So I brushed my teeth and put on my coat and I ran out the door and I got to the box office and I said, I- I'm a student. Do you have student tickets? I pulled out my, my MFA ID card from University of the Arts without a date on it. Luckily it doesn't have a date on it. And they said, well, we don't have student tickets anymore, but we do have the 30 under 30 tickets. And I, without skipping a beat, I said, well, I'm not, which is, you know, I guess I could have taken my chance, but I felt like I couldn't possibly fool these people and I would have just been embarrassing myself in the end to try to pass. So this particular box office person was very kind to me and said, well, we have, do you work here? She asked. I think she kind of knew that I do work there in some capacity. I said, yes, I design for the ballet sometimes. And she said, well, we have half off rush tickets and I can give you a $44 ticket in the first ring. I said, hot damn. And there I was, and just like that, I was walking my way up to the first ring to watch Mozartiana. And Sarah Mearns and Russell Jansen were a breath of fresh, just calm, just living life out there easy breezy it was like it wasn't like watching a a dance like a codified sequence of steps it was just like watching watching people have an experience watching music happen to two people it was just the there's something about the nature of their stage relationship and partnership that i find really refreshing. I I mean, I think it has a lot to do with Sarah's trust in Russell. Um, I think she's not afraid to 
yeah, she's not afraid of making a mistake with Russell. She, I, I, I just don't know how to explain it, but I think they're, they're both their best dancing selves when dancing with one another. And I've, I'm, I'm really here for it. I had the best time watching them do that series of very short, ingenious variations. And for, for as tall of a drink of water as Russell is, he handled those speedy, speedy variations with no problem. So calm, so much ease above the waist and such um, precision below the waist. It's just like, it's what we all try to, have tried to achieve at some point in our lives. So I loved it. Neither of them will hear this. <laughs> um, after that was Ruby's and Tyler Peck was making her New York City ballet debut in the ballerina role and Isabella Lafreniere was making her debut in the tall ballerina role and Anthony Huxley was performing in the Eddie Malala role and it was good and I have to say I somewhat I was sort of dissociated during it and I realized that home was calling to me so at the next intermission I chatted with Mira, Nadon, and Devin Alberta outside the theater for a bit. And then I chatted with Tyler Peck for a little while as she was on her way home. And then I, um, who, by the way, Harriet and I are designing some costumes for, for an upcoming program at Boston Ballet, which I think, I mean, I can only speak for Tyler's piece, but it's going to look incredible. So if you're in the Boston area, go and see it because the costumes our mage. Um, so I went home before La Valse. I just, I wasn't in the mood. And sometimes I don't want to see, I don't want to see that kind of ponytail. I just don't. And other times I do. And just last night, I, it wasn't for me. So I got myself home I did some drawing and um, went to bed too late. Did I watch something last night? I don't think so. I'm not caught up on Euphoria. Oh, no, I did. I watched The Gilded Age. No, 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 no. I had sort of listened to The Gilded Age in the afternoon while I was drawing. Oh, so there you have it. I could... Cynthia Nixon is blowing up HBO. Um... So then, okay, so then I went to another show, which was tonight, tonight, I went to see, uh, oh my gosh, Harriet did this brilliant thing where she posted a story on her Instagram, uh, a picture of Bartok Ballet that, um, where the caption was, will someone pay for us to see our own work? <laughs> Because the New York City Ballet um, gives Harriet and I two comps to the opening night of um, whatever it is that we've designed for the premiere. And then that's, that's it. And that's it. So um, people responded, actually, and were like, huh? What? You can't just go back and see your own work? No, we cannot. Um, at least not for free. Um, and as Harriet pointed out, 
so astutely, um, to pay for tickets to see the work we've done at the ballet would, would negate the royalty fees that we receive for the ballet. So, anywho, um, I'm constantly soliciting um, the tiny handful of people that I know who are under 30 years old in the company who can get the $30 ticket for me. I need to get all of them gifts for having done that for me over the years. Thank you, Miriam Miller. Thank you, Indiana Woodward. Thank you, Claire Kretschmar. You've really come through for me. Um, and, you know, at some point, none of them will be 30 anymore. I mean, Claire is on her way out. Indiana's on her way out in a couple of years. And then Miriam will be behind them in, a, you know, I don't know, five years, six years. Well, that's in a while. I have time. By then, who knows what will have happened to me. Maybe I, too, will be in L.A. Be doing a pilot with Che. Okay. So... An Wait, I just want to quickly say that another show that I saw was the New York Philharmonic with Anthony Roth Costanzo and Justin Vivian Bond, and I was laughing, laughing my flat ass off for the whole time. It was one of the funniest shows I have ever seen. And I ran into Matthew Simonelli, who is the costume designer for Search Party there, who I've known for a long time. And, and we're going to have lunch at some point, I have a feeling. And it was just so nice to see Matthew. I just wanted to tell you that. And my other celebrity sighting, which was not so much a sighting as a full-on um, two-hour interaction, was at the premiere of Partita. Harriet and I were seated in row D with our, with our plus ones. So I had Zach Gonder next to me, and then there I was. And as the lights were dimming, I had an empty seat to my left, and in rushed two... two women and they sit beside me and then suddenly one of them turns to me and says Reed and it's Brie Welch who I met when I was in that Rachel Comey fashion show and who I've since been in touch with regarding a project she's doing and she is in between she and I is her plus one some other woman I don't know who it is so we get to the first intermission and we're all sitting there and we're chatting and we sit through the entire mission intermission and just chat 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 and uh, we're talking about how we arrived at this version of the costumes and the music and blah, blah, blah. And, and Brie introduces me to her friend. This is Katie and I'm Brie and blah, blah, blah. And then at a certain point in the conversation, you know, I feel like I'm getting very close with Katie and we're asking questions of each other and, and, um, and Brie has gotten up to use the facilities and I, um, I say, so, Katie, what do you do? And she says, well, I'm an actress. And I, I say, oh, well, for, for what kind of, you know, for the, for television and film? And she goes, mm-hmm. And so the way in which she, her tone of voice, the delivery of the mm-hmm, I thought, I immediately went through the Rolodex. I was like, oh, this person is playing something down. And it was in that moment that I realized I was sitting next to none other than KT Holmes. And um, look, I played it cool. All I, I just said, well, congratulations. And then we carried on. And um, I told her, well, you need to come see Four Quartets next week. And she was like, oh, I have tickets. And... Um, and I said, where do you live? And she told me, and I said, oh my gosh, you know, I don't live too far away from there. And, you know, we shot the sheet. 
Um, so now Katie and I are best girlfriends. Suri and I have been playing Mancala in the evenings. It's not true. So, anyways. Uh, Jacob Robert Jacob Tidwell. Who? That's how I have Jacob in my phone. I just don't know. I don't know how people are identifying these days in terms of their last names. Jacob got in touch and said, I will buy you $30 tickets. I'm going to the box office this afternoon. Um, let me know if you want to come. I said, I want to come. And I reached out to Nick Mouse and he said, I'd love to join you. Jacob got us two tickets. And I met Nick at the Blue Cafe across the street before the show and I ate a piece of cake. And then we went to the show Ran into Pam Tanowitz, thank God. And they did a Jamar Roberts premiere, the gorgeous Jamar, and they did Bartok Ballet, and they did something else. Oh, the Runaway, Kyle's piece from a couple years ago. Now, I have seen Bartok Ballet a couple times, and every time it's a very different experience. And this is a somewhat revised version of Bartok Ballet, which I saw a few days ago in a, in a stage rehearsal to go look at the costumes. And um, get, your, get yourself there, everybody. It's coming back in a couple weeks for a while. And get, your, get ye to Bartok Ballet. And if you can, see it more than once. Because it's not, it's not easy. It doesn't go down real easy. But you, it merits multiple viewings. There, There's no way that you can actually take it all in, in one viewing. You just can't. You cannot. Um, so go experience the magic of something that will have you, have your brain being just a million question marks. Um... And, uh, I think I can't, I can't go on about ballet anymore tonight. I just can't. I can't. Um, I think that's, that's my story, Morning Glory. I'm, I've been recording for nearly one hour just by my lonesome. Um, I thank you for those of you who reached out about our feelings, our facts episode, and hopefully we'll be back soon with part two. I have yet to finish the book, so that would be an important thing to do before we do part two. I'm trying to solicit Jared Angle to come and um, join Russell and I so we can do a roundtable discussion about feelings or facts. I had a nice chat with Nick Mouse about Yvonne Rayner tonight because Nick has performed for Yvonne and been in discussion with Yvonne regarding... Um, some research he's doing on James Waring, which I cannot wait to hear more about. I was very sorry to hear that David Gordon just died, which I had not heard via the news, but apparently dance icon David Gordon died a few days ago, and I'm I'm so sad for Valda and Ain and all those people who loved and cared about David Gordon, including Pam Tanowitz. So rest in peace, David Gordon. Thank you for your incredible contributions to dance. Um, and, um, thank you all for joining me tonight for what actually was dance and stuff. I love you. Bing, bong, bing, bong, bing.